you got a Bible, you can open to 1 Peter chapter 1, where we're going to be this morning. I want to say thanks to you as a church for this generous gift. Um, it wasn't what Ryan and I rehearsed earlier. Um, I told him to come up and welcome and talk about the retreat and introduce Jacob, but obviously he had another trick up his sleeve. And so I'm very grateful for that. I'm also very grateful for him and for all the students who are here this morning. Um, it's a blessing to me as a pastor to have a youth pastor who loves Jesus first and foremost and loves kids. And he wants to see kids love Jesus. And so what I value most about Ryan is not all the gifts and skills that he brings to the table, because he does bring many, but his heart for Jesus and his heart for students and his heart to see students love Jesus. And so that's a great, great um, honor and privilege to serve alongside of him as he seeks to do that in the lives of students in the Royce City, Fate, and Rockwell community. Uh, so if you got, as we said before, First Peter is where we're going to be. Uh, we've been working our way through that book together, and we're in First Peter chapter one, beginning in verse thirteen. We'll read down through verse sixteen together this morning. Peter writes these words. He says, "Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance." But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Over the course of the last month and over the course of really the better part of the next year, we're going to be looking at First uh, Peter together because the whole book really is about what it means to live, what it means to live in a land that is not your home. And so, so far we have seen that we're not tourists who are kind of taking selfies and panoramic pictures to go back and post on Facebook or Instagram or blast out across Twitter. We're not just tourists here, but we're also not full-fledged citizens of this world because our citizenship is held in heaven and that's where our true home is. So we're really exiles or we're sojourners, to use Peter's language, or we might say we're resident aliens who are living here on green cards waiting to arrive in our true heavenly home. That's kind of how we live in this world, in this time, at this, in this juncture in history. And so we've come into this status as exiles or as resident aliens, not by our choice but by God's, not by our will, but by the will of God who has loved us from before we ever drew a breath. Before we ever breathed for the first time, he had set his affection upon us and he set us apart by his Holy Spirit. The text tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, for obedience to Jesus Christ. So God the Father loved us. He set us apart by His Spirit that we might obey Jesus. And so as sojourners, essentially what we've said so far is that our lives would be marked by the values, customs, and practices, not of this world, but of the world that is to come, of our true home. And in the text that we just read together this morning, Peter says this type of bending of our wills and bending of our ways and bending of our words toward our true home and not this world, Peter says that's what's called holiness. That's what's called holiness. And so that's what we want to dig into this morning is what is holiness. But before we can get into an understanding of what holiness is, I think it's important that we understand what it is not because there's lots of popular misconceptions about what holiness is that I think aren't necessarily false, but they're just incomplete. Okay? So there's some misconceptions or popular understandings, and one of those is that, uh, that, is that holiness is the ability to keep a long list of rules. 
Okay? And some of you may feel that way. When you hear me say the word holiness, you may be first and foremost thinking, well, there's this list of rules that now I have to keep. And so God has given me the, the Ten Commandments, or he's given me the law in the Old Testament, or all the commands of the New Testament. So there's this long list of rules now that I must adhere to and keep. And in fact, whenever people begin to approach holiness that way, as if holiness is sheerly just a list of rules, one of the things it creates is almost a contempt for holiness as opposed to a celebration of it. Because you begin to hear people say things like that, well, he or she is just kind of holier than thou, right? You hear people use that language before, they're kind of holier than thou. What that means is they, they are better at keeping the list of rules than I am, and they know it, okay? And that's typically what people are talking about when they say that someone is holier than thou. And oftentimes they're incredibly unapproachable if they're better at keeping the list of rules than you are. So it's hard to get close to that person because they're always pushing people away, perhaps by comments that they make, because they think that holiness really just consists in the keeping of a list of rules. And one of the ways to know if you've kind of subscribed to that particular understanding of holiness is if people don't approach you. People don't seek you out. People don't come to you in times of need because they're afraid that, they're gonna, that you're going to push them away because they're not in the same place as you are with regards to the rules that they should be keeping. It's one popular misconception of holiness. Holiness is not looking at God and saying, give me all the rules so I can keep them. Holiness also is not um, just being a good person with a kind of a handful of bad habits where everybody else has lots of them. Okay? Holiness is not just the aim to be a good person. See, some people generate not just a list of rules, but a list of character qualities. And they say, those individuals who possess these character qualities, and it's pretty funny because usually right, the character qualities vary from person to person who are trying to generate this list of what someone who's holy should look like and act like. And usually that list of character qualities are things that that person who's making the list exhibit themselves. And so they're like, man, I'm pretty holy, but they're not because they don't exhibit the same kind of character qualities as I do. But holiness isn't just a list of rules, and it's not just a list of character qualities, so as you can measure holiness on the basis of whether people are kind, or whether they're tolerant, or whether they're accepting, or whether they're generous, or whether they're patient. Those who exhibit these qualities aren't necessarily holy. See, holiness is not looking at God and saying, give me all the rules so that I can keep them. And it's also not looking at others and saying, look how good of a person I am compared with them. It's neither of those two things. Now, holiness is not less, listen, holiness is not less than recognizing God-ordained boundaries that he's established for our good. So there are some things that we do and don't do, nor is it less than certain qualities of character that bloom in your life and ripen in your life, but it is much more than that. It goes beyond that. Those are incomplete understandings of holiness because holiness in the scriptures is giving ourselves wholly to God. That's what holiness is in the Bible. It's not a list of rules that you keep, and it's not just a list of character qualities that you exhibit or portray, but holiness is a disposition of the heart whereby you say, God, everything that I am and everything that I have belongs to you. So if you look in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 to 16 that we just read together this morning, Peter tells us that when, we're, when he calls us to be holy as God is holy, he roots our calling to be holy in the nature of God's uh, identity as one who is holy. So it's a response to God. Our holiness is a response to God's holiness. And whenever we say that God is holy, here's what we mean. We mean that God is holy, completely other than us. 
absolutely distinct from us, infinitely different than us. He's not one of the guys or one of the girls, right? He's just kind of like buddy, buddy, hang out. He's absolutely infinitely and, and, and transcendently above us. We are temporal and he is eternal. We are limited and he is unlimited. He is the creator and we are those whom he has created. He's above, beyond, and apart from us. Absolutely. And what Pete, the text that Peter cites whenever he says, you shall be holy as I am holy, comes out of Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 to 45, where God had just redeemed Israel out of slavery and bondage and captivity in Egypt, and he was leading them toward the holy land, the promised land, right? And on the way, he gives them his law. And as he gives them his law, he says, you shall be holy, you shall be distinct, you shall be separate from all the other nations because I, the God who has rescued you, I, the God who has redeemed you, am separate and distinct from all the other gods of all the other nations. I'm above them, I'm beyond them, I'm different than they are. And so you also should be distinct, set apart from the people who worship them. So Peter goes back into the Old Testament to say, this is what we are called to live as, sojour- as, as sojourners. We're called to live lives that are characterized and marked by holiness. Of saying, God, everything that I have, everything that I am belongs to you. I'm wholly yours. That's exactly what it meant to be something to be holy in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, you had holy places, right, that was set apart for the worship of God like the temple or the tabernacle. You had holy possessions that were set apart for the worship of God, like the candle stands that went into those locations or the basins that they used to wash or the altars that they used to perform sacrifices. Those things were holy. They were set apart for the worship of God. Or you had holy people who helped facilitate that. You had the priests who were set apart and distinct who would help facilitate this worship of God with these holy possessions in this holy place. But the idea of holiness was that this place and these people and these possessions, they were wholly belonging to God. Everything they had belonged to him. And that's what it means to live as holy as a sojourner. It means to say, God, everything that I am and everything that I have belongs to you. It's not to look at God and say, give me the list of rules. And it's not to look at others and say that I'm better than you. It's to look up to the heavens and say, God, I am wholly yours, set apart for you. Use me in your service. Use me in your service. Now this is, listen, this kind of rubs us the wrong way a little bit in our particular culture. Because in our culture, for us to be used by someone else to accomplish their ends and achieve their purposes, we're not down with that, right? We like to use other people to achieve our purposes, but we don't want to be instruments in someone else's hands to achieve their purposes. But holiness doesn't work that way. Holiness is the recognition that ultimately I've given up the right of determining right from wrong for myself, and I bring every decision under subjection to the king of creation and his decree. I don't belong to myself any longer. They don't say, yes, here's, here's God, here's, a, here's portions of my life. You see, holiness is not a lease contract with God. Right? Whenever you enter into a lease contract with someone, you have an owner and a tenant, don't you? 
Right? And, and the owner basically specifies the terms of the lease. Say, I'm going to lease you this home, or I'm going to lease you this commercial space for X amount, of, X amount of time, for X amount of dollars, for specific purposes. And so when you sign a lease contract, as you try and move into perhaps a commercial space in order to be able to operate out of that and sell whatever goods and services you're going to provide to the community around you, the owners of that property say, you can operate in there for these purposes, for this amount of time, for X amount of dollars, but you cannot do things outside of what's been approved within the lease contract. And so you and I, oftentimes, our natural bent is to look at God and say, God, we have this kind of lease arrangement with God to where we retain ownership and we say, God, you can use me for these purposes and these purposes and these purposes, but not these. God, you can have this much of my life but I'm going to keep the rest to myself. And if that's the case, then the person who's still in control is you and not him. Still me and not him. If we approach a relationship with God as a lease contract. So you can, you can say to God, you can have my time on Sunday mornings, but not Monday mornings. I'll show up once a week for an hour and 15 minutes. But apart from that, God, I'm going to retain the time and flexibility to make whatever decisions I want to make. There's lots of folks who are, who are scattered in churches all across our nation. They don't understand holiness as a wholeness of surrender to God. That's exactly how the Bible understands it. Or they say, God, you can have my time on Monday nights, but not on Sunday mornings. Or you can have my time, but you can't have my money. Or God, you can have my money, but you can't have my time. For some of us, the easiest thing to do is to show up and serve somebody, but the hardest thing to do is to let go of our possessions. For, other of us, for others of us, the easiest thing for us to do is to write a check to someone, but not actually show up and serve alongside of them. God, you can have my time, but not my money. Or God, you can have my money, but not my time. Instead of saying, God, I'm wholly, absolutely, completely yours. See, some of us also, we say, God, you can, have, you can, you can, you can do whatever you want with me, but listen, I'm going to hang on to my kids. I'm going to keep my kids to myself. Right? Because I know what's best for them. I know the experiences that they need. I know what's going to ultimately make them happy. And listen, I feel this pull at times as a parent as well. Sometimes some of us are trying to generate happiness in the lives of our children in a way that will completely undercut and circumvent their holiness by encouraging certain things that probably shouldn't be encouraged and discouraging things that should be encouraged. So what if you were to stand before God and say, God, everything... Everything I am, everything that I have is yours, including those, including those who are related to me. Even my kids. It's to stand before God and say, God, you own me twice over. You created me and gave me breath to breathe in my lungs, so I pour out your praise, but you also redeemed me. You rescued me from Satan's sin and death. You've given me a hope and a joy that is incomparable to anything else you can find in this life. You own me twice over, God, and so everything that I have is yours. That's what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of holiness. Not a list of rules and not a certain character qualities. It's not less than those things, but it's more. It's much more. It's saying, God, I surrender. Use me. Now, we don't come out of the box that way, right? Right? <laughs> And we don't come out of the baptismal that way either after our conversion. 
that there's a progressive growth in that holiness that takes place over the duration of time. So how is it that you and I begin to grow in holiness to where we're saying tomorrow, God, use me. I am yours absolutely, completely, fully I am yours. Well, tomorrow you wake up and you realize, well, I'm still kind of hanging on to this area of my life. So God, now I'm, I'm wholly yours. Well, three months from now you wake up and realize, well, I'm still hanging on to this area. Or I've taken that part back, right? I've kind of taken the wheel back into my own hands because I want to steer because I think I, can, I know where I'm going a little better than he does. So how is it that we grow in holiness to where there's a, a fuller surrender of everything that we are and everything that we have? And Peter tells us that in this text. Listen to what he says. He says, the way that you grow in holiness, the way that you grow in holiness is by setting your hope, he says, on future grace. That's the way you grow in holiness, he says. You set your hope on future grace. In verse 13, Peter issues the very first command in the letter, right? Up, up through now in all 12 verses, he's been saying, this is who you are. This is what God has done. Now in verse 13, he comes to say, here's what you should do. And listen to what he says in verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to set your hope fully on future grace, on grace that's coming one day? It hasn't arrived just yet. You can see it on the horizon, but it's not here. How do you, what does it mean to set your hope fully on future grace? Here's it, it means at least this. It means that you're not setting your hope partially on it. That you're not setting your hope partially on it. The authors of the New City Catechism uh, which was based on the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1563. In their first question of the New City Catechism, they write this. They say, what is our only hope in life or death? What is our only hope in life or death? And listen to what the response to that question is. Their answer is as follows, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Say, what is your only hope? What's the only thing that you're banking on? What's the only thing that you're expecting good from, both in life? You notice how it encompasses the totality of human experience, both in life and in death. My only hope in life and death, they say, is that I I don't belong to myself. I don't belong to myself, but I belong in body and soul both the material and immaterial part of who I am, and in life and death, in this age and the age to come, I belong not to myself, but to Jesus. The totality of my human experience belongs to Jesus. Now listen, I've talked to a lot of people over the years, a lot of people over the years, who are hoping in Jesus for their death, but not hoping in him for their life. Their hope is set partially on the grace to be revealed or to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ, but their hope is not set fully on that. In other words, you know, a couple of years ago, um, or several years back now, I guess, um, the, the poker game Texas Hold'em became very popular through the World Series of Poker on ESPN, and they would broadcast that, and um, you, know, you could watch all these poker matches unfolding. But uh, the thing that intrigued me most was kind of the guts of some of these guys whenever they're sitting on a hand, and they're looking at the cards in their hand, they're looking at the chips on the table, and they're like, if I don't do something now, it's not going to go well for me. It's not going to end well for me. And so what do they do? Based on the cards that they have in their hand, the chips they have in front of them on the table, they take all their chips and they push it to the center of the table and they say what? I'm all in. I'm all in. Everything that I have, I'm pushing to the center of the table. I'm going all in. I'm betting everything on this hand that I've got. 
And Peter says the way that you grow in holiness is whenever you look at the chips that you've got and you look at the cards in your hand and, and, and you look at the five cards there and they got Jesus, 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 Jesus. And you say, here's the hand that I've been dealt and I'm pushing everything to the center of the table and betting everything on him. Everything and nothing on anyone else, but everything on him. I'm all in. I'm all in on this, this grace that's coming one day. This grace that's going to be brought to me one day when Jesus shows up, I'm going all in on him. I'm not just hoping for him, on, on, upon him for my death, but also in this life. In this life. So I'm not really expecting good from anything or anyone else other than him in this life. That's what Peter's talking about when he says, set your hope fully, push all the chips in, and bet everything on him. But what's the grace that's going to come to us when Christ returns? What's Peter talking about? What Peter is talking about is that we are waiting for the eternal 24 karat radiance of God's presence and glory. That's what we're waiting for. For this, this one that we kind of now see dimly in a mirror that we will see face to face in all of his beauty, in all of his majesty, in all of his glory. Revelation 21, 23 says, for the day, what we're waiting for is for the day when we will need no lamp because the glory of God will give light and it will, its lamp will be the lamb. Jesus will be the lamb and will give light to everyone. That's what we're waiting for, for Jesus to return and for his, his full, unfiltered radiance of his glory to give light to everyone and everything. We're waiting to be physically whole in that day. We're waiting for our bodies to be released from their bondage to decay and death, which are a part of the curse resulting from the fall. We're waiting for the eyes that will work without contacts and ears that will work without hearing aids. We're waiting. We're waiting for a day without surgeries. We're waiting for a day in which there will be no more aches of aging. <laughs> Can I get an amen? We're waiting for the day Listen, as I stood at the foot of Melanie Provo's bed on Friday and prayed with her and her family, I thought we're waiting for a day where there's no longer any oncologists. They're out of jobs because there's no more cancer. There's no more malignant cells. There's no more tumors in the body. There's no more disease. There's no more of the decay of this body that we are trapped in right now. We're set free from the decay of this creation. That's part of what we're waiting for. We're waiting to be physically whole when death is defeated and we are resurrected like Jesus has been. But we're also waiting to be made spiritually whole. We're waiting for to be free from the presence of idolatry, where we think that we're going to find, we think that we're going to find satisfaction and significance and security in someone or something other than Jesus. We're waiting for the day in which we're free from lust and pornography where our eyes are absolutely captivated by the beauty of Christ and we don't need to look anywhere else. We're waiting for the day in which we'll be free from the presence of greed and covetousness, from the presence of gossip and slander, from the presence of injustice and all forms of abuse. We're waiting for the day in which we'll be free from the presence of hatred and persecution from genocide and racism. We're waiting for that day when our hearts, not just physically but spiritually, will work right in the presence of our God who is king and created and redeemed us. That's what we're waiting for. And Peter says, you've got to push all your chips to the center of the table and bet everything on that. Everything on that. Set your hope fully 
on Jesus returning. And when he returns, the glory of God will cover the earth as waters the sea. As the Old Testament tells us. We're waiting for that day. That's what we're waiting. That's what we're setting our hope on. See, holiness is saying, God, everything that I have is yours. Because I'm not looking for good in this life from anyone other than you. And I'm betting everything, everything on you. Not on my kids. Not on my job. Not on this relationship. Right, students? Some of you think, I'm going to bet everything on this relationship. is going to make me happy. And then ultimately, you break up two days later. <laughs> and you're back to trying to find someone else to fill that void. No, I'm betting everything on Jesus. Everything. He says you've got to set your hope fully on him. Now, how do you go about doing that? What prepares you or equips you to do that? Peter tells us there's two things. Two things that prepare you to set your hope fully on this grace that's coming one day. It's not here in its fullness yet, but it's coming one day. And this is what Peter says. First of all, he says, you've got to turn your mind on and not off. See, most people think that becoming a Christian means that you turn your mind off and you just blind faith believe that some, these things are going to happen one day. But what Peter says, listen to what Peter says in the text. He says you've got to turn your mind on and not off. In verse 13, Peter says the opposite of what most people think Christianity is in turning the mind off. He says you've got to turn it on. He says you've got to prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. Now, literally what Peter says there is this, and some of your translations might render it this way. You might have a footnote down there in the bottom. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. Like, what? What does that mean to gird up your, the loins of your mind? Well, in those days, right, they didn't dress like we do in our day. They wore these, men wore these long flowing robes. They kind of had a belt around their waist, right, to keep it from, you know, catching all the wind and functioning like a parachute. They wore a belt around their waist, but they had these long flowing robes. Now, these long flowing robes were not very conducive for things like running and lifting and jumping and fighting. And so whenever they went into battle, whenever they had manual labor to do, they would gird up their loins, it's a great image, isn't it? They would gird up their, so they'd pull up their robes and they would tuck that long flowing robe into their, what girded them, right? Their belt. They would tuck it into their belt. And so their, their lower legs were exposed, but they were also now unencumbered to actually do something, to engage in work. And so Peter says, you got to gird up the loins of your mind. What he's saying is this, you got to turn your mind on and get your mind ready to work like it's never worked before. If you're going to set your hope fully, if you're going to bet everything on Jesus, you've got to turn your mind on, not shut it off. Most of us think we've got to shut our minds off and just blindly go with faith. But Peter says, no, you've got to turn it on and think through the implications of what's coming in the future. You've got to turn your mind on and think through the hope that you have in Christ. You've got to think through what that means for you in the present. You don't shut it off. He says, you turn it on. You've got to prepare your mind to work. And so whenever you face various trials, some of you are in the midst of all kinds of difficulties and challenges right now. In your families, in your personal life, you're fighting battles in your heart that you never envisioned fighting with your own desires and your own temptations. And Peter says, when you face various kinds of trials, you don't just shut your mind off and say, I'm going to let go and let God. 
He says, no, you got to turn your mind on and you got to think through what it means to bet everything on Jesus. To push everything to the center. you got to think through what that means for you here and now. And listen, if you will do that, if you will act that way, your unbelieving friends will be shocked. Because most of your unbelieving friends believe that to become a Christian, you've got to stop thinking. Peter says to live as a Christian, you have to start thinking. You've got to turn it on, not off. So for instance, if you go into a conversation with an unbelieving friend and you say, hey, let's turn our minds on and think about what this looks like. Where, what, what foundation? You can ask your unbelieving friends this question. What foundation do you have? What basis upon which do you forgive someone else? If you don't believe that there is a God to whom everyone will be accountable, if you don't believe that judgment is coming one day, if you don't believe that judgment has already fallen on Christ for those who trust and treasure him, and if you don't believe that one day judgment is coming for all those who do not trust and treasure him, then what basis upon which do you forgive other people in your life? You don't have a basis to forgive other people in your life. But if you're a Christian and you turn your mind on and you begin to think through the implications of your hope that is set fully upon the renewal of all things at the return of Christ when the glory of God covers the earth as the waters do the sea, you turn your mind on and you begin to think about what it looks like to forgive someone who has betrayed you, what it looks like to forgive someone who has wronged you, what it looks like to forgive someone who withheld the truth from you, what it looks like to forgive someone who abandoned you in your greatest hour of need. You begin to think through the implications of the fact that, listen, no matter what they have said or what they have done, judgment is coming. It either has come if they trust and treasure Jesus and has fallen upon him. And so I can forgive them because their sin has already been paid for. Or if they do not trust and treasure Jesus, judgment is coming for them one day. And they will be accountable for that. And that's why the scriptures tell us, listen, don't exact revenge because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so you can move towards them in forgiveness. You don't shut your mind off, but you turn it on, Peter says. It's the first step to setting your hope fully upon the grace that's coming one day. Because you see, your hope for the future empowers you to live in the present. So you've got to think through its implications. Some of you go, well, how in the world does what's coming in the future give me strength and power to live in the present? How does what's coming in the future shape what I do today? Listen, when my wife and I were expecting our first child, uh, we discovered we were pregnant, you know, and all the joy of, of those moments together, at, you know, when you first find out that you're expecting a child. And then the work set in, okay, because there's rooms to be painted, and there's furniture to be purchased and put together, and all these toys to be stored, and all the clothes to go into the dresser. And so for nine months, we, we spent nine months getting ready for the arrival of this child, putting together furniture, painting rooms, storing clothes, right? Organizing outfits in the closet. Second one came along, we're just like, just get her here, right? We're, we're not doing anything to get her. But the first one, like, everything was in its right place. You know, you got zero, you know, infant, newborn stuff. And you got one to you know, zero to three months and three to six months and nine to 12 months. And you got all this stuff organized and color-coded and set in its perfect position. 
See, we, we spent nine months working because we knew something was coming. We knew someone was coming. And what we were hoping for, what we were expecting, we were expecting the arrival of our son on September 3rd, 2007. And on September 3rd, 2007, well, that wasn't his due date, but he arrived then. We were expecting him to come, and he came. But we spent nine months getting ready for his arrival. See, what you're hoping for in the future absolutely shapes how you live in the present. Absolutely. And if what you're hoping for in the future is for your heart to be made right spiritually, your body to be made right physically, and the glory of God to shine in all of its radiance and beauty, and you're betting everything on that, it will shape your today. It will. So you got to turn your mind on, not off. And secondly, you got to turn your mind toward thoughts of eternal joy and not just temporal happiness. You got to turn your mind toward thoughts of eternal joy. In 1 Peter verse, chapter 1, verse 13, Peter also says that we are to be sober-minded. In other words, your mind can't be clouded, but it's got to be thinking clearly. You can't be intoxicated. Right? That's the idea of sobriety, right? You can't be intoxicated. And we can be intoxicated by all kinds of things in this world. We get intoxicated by success. We get intoxicated by um, you know, possessions. We can be intoxicated by positions and promotions. We can be intoxicated by relationships. We can be intoxicated and inebriated by all kinds of things spiritually in this life. And Peter says, if you're going to set your hope fully on future grace, then here's what you've got to do. You've got to set your mind. You've got to turn it on, not off. And you've got to turn it towards thoughts of eternal joy and not just temporal happiness. So you got to turn your thoughts toward the beauty of Jesus Christ, toward the glory of what it will look like to be in his presence one day, and not just thoughts of land and houses and cars and promotions and children. If that's what your mind is turned toward constantly, then you will set your hope there, and that will shape your today. But if you're setting your mind toward things of eternity because you're not intoxicated by the things of this world, but you're absolutely clear-headed and thinking about what's to come, then you will set your mind there. And you will fix your gaze upon things that are ultimate and not things that are non-ultimate. And it will absolutely change the way that you live. It will produce this, God, I am absolutely yours. Use me however you will type of holiness. See, one of the ways you know whether or not your mind is intoxicated is by looking at your conversations. Looking at your conversations. What do you talk about most frequently with the most passion and sometimes with the most pain? What do you talk about most frequently? What's on your lips most often? Is it the job that you're pursuing? Is it the children that you're trying to have or raise? Is it the home that you're building? Is it the land that you're buying? What's on your lips most often is an indication of what's, right? The heart, the mouth speaks from where? The overflow of the heart. Where's your heart gravitated? What's your mind fixed on? It's coming out of your mouth most frequently in conversations. You don't even realize it. I don't even realize it at times. One of the ways to know whether or not you're setting your hope and pushing everything to the center of the table and saying, Jesus, I'm all in on you. By the conversations that you're having around the dinner table or in the living room 
or with close friends as you gather for fellowship. It's your mind fixed on. It's going to come out of your mouth. Your mind's going to be fixed on all kinds of things that will not lead to eternal joy, but they will actually lead to temporal frustration and distress. So holiness is saying, God, I'm wholly yours. Use me however you want. We grow in that by pushing everything that's into the table on Jesus, turning our minds on, setting them toward things of eternal, of, uh, eternal joy. But before we're done this morning, as we close, I, I want you to see, and this is going to be so vital for some of you in the room this morning, I want you to see where it begins. Where does holiness begin? Because holiness does not begin with you cleaning your life up, but it begins with Jesus giving his in your place. It does not begin with you cleaning your life up, but Jesus giving his in your place. A few years ago, I pulled up to one of those kind of self-service car washes. You know, they got the pressure sprayers, and you got to put the quarters in, and they got all the soaps and detergents and waxes, and you got the wand that you can kind of wash it off with. I pulled up to one of those self-service car washes, and there's a big sign on top of the self-service car wash that read as follows. The sign said, No ATVs or trucks covered in mud. All right. Car wash. You know, wash my car. No ATVs or trucks covered in mud. In other words, if you've been out mud riding or you've been out in the fields on your four-wheeler and they're covered in mud, caked in mud, you cannot pull into the stall and begin to wash it off. You've got to go somewhere else, clean it up first, knock off all the kind of rough spots, and then maybe you can come back and pull it into the stall and utilize their equipment in order to clean the car. And listen, there's so many people in our culture who believe Christianity works that way. They believe that holiness starts with us cleaning our lives up. So in other words, before we show up in church, some of you may feel that way. I've had conversations with friends and family over the course of the years, and I've, as I've engaged them around the gospel and invited them to church, they've said, listen, for us to come back to the church, we're going to have to clean up a lot of stuff in our life before we ever set foot in those doors. But see, what they're missing, what they're missing is what Peter says here in the text that Christianity or holiness, saying, God, I'm holy, yours, doesn't start with you saying, I've got to clean up all these things about my life before I set foot in the doors of the church or before I come to God. But holiness starts whenever you see that God's not waiting for you to clean your life up, but he's given his son because you couldn't. Because you couldn't. In verse 14, Peter says, listen, does he say as obedient slaves or as obedient employees? What does he say? As obedient children, do not conform to your former passions. Obedient children. Now listen, in order for someone to have a children, they've got to either, either take at least either one of the two, two options. One, they've got to take biological action or legal action. But in both instances, when a husband and wife come together and biologically God creates life in her womb, or they come together and they determine they're going to adopt a child and bring them into their family. Legally, they take action. They're saying, I want you. I want you in my home. I want you in my life. I want you in my family. And Peter says, as obedient children, not as employees, but as children whom God has already said, I want you. 
I want you. He's caused you back up in verse uh, 4. I've caused you to be born again. Or verse 3. Caused you to be born again to a living hope. God took action. Brought us to life. Because he wanted us. He loved us. He set his affection upon us. Before we ever breathed a breath. See holiness doesn't start with you going. Man I got to cover up my tattoos. Before I go into church this morning. I gotta cover up. I gotta take out all these piercings before I walk into the doors of that place because they might reject me. They might not receive me. Listen, holiness doesn't work that way. It's not, it doesn't come through the cleaning up of the external, the outside of the cup, but it comes whenever you behold God giving his son in your place because you couldn't be holy. Because you couldn't say, God, I'm holy yours, apart from him saying, I want you. In verse 13, Peter says, therefore, therefore. You know what that therefore is there for? To point you back to verses 1 to 12. Before Peter ever says a word about what you should do, about what I should do, he speaks extensively about what God has done. Extensively. And I want to read this to you as we close. This is what he says God has done. He says, we are elect exiles because God has set his affection upon us from before the foundations of the world, marked us out by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit so that we would be obedient to Jesus Christ. God has caused us to be born again as his son or as his daughter because he had set his affection on us and he wanted us. He has given us a hope beyond the grave by raising Jesus from the dead. God is keeping an inheritance for, in, for us in heaven and keeping us on earth for our inheritance. God is purposing trials in our lives to refine us and draw the dross to the top. God is filling us with joy through our hope in love for and faith in Jesus Christ. God was revealing to the Old Testament prophets the sufferings and glories of Jesus and empowering the New Testament apostles and present day preachers to declare those sufferings and glories to make the gospel beautiful before our eyes. Peter shows us that Christianity doesn't begin with you. It begins with God. It doesn't begin with me. It begins with him. And listen, that is revolutionary for some of you in here this morning because you've always thought Christianity. You may have grown up in very traditional religious environments where you thought, in, in order to come to God, I've got to stop cursing. I've got to stop smoking. I've got to stop going out. As opposed to saying, I can never stop doing those things. And so Jesus gave, God gave himself for me in Christ. And because he gave himself for me in Christ, I want to give myself wholly to him. Because how else do you respond to someone who has given themselves utterly for you other than giving yourself utterly to him? Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning recognizing your holiness, recognizing that you are distinct, that you are set apart, that you are different and because of that, Father, you call us to the same. But God, help us not to fall victim to these misconceptions and think that holiness is just the keeping of a set of rules or it's just the generation of some character qualities. But God, may there be a church in Rockwall County that stands and gazes at the fact that you gave your life for us and says, here I am, send me. Here I am, use me. I could never ascend the stairs to you, but you came down to me. And because you've given yourself utterly for me, I'm going to give myself utterly for you. 
May Redeemer Church be a people who is filled with people who are giving their lives utterly for you, Father. Because they're absolutely captivated by the fact that you wrote yourself into the story to rescue those that you've created by giving yourself utterly for them. Help us to turn our minds on and think through the implications of what our future entails and to turn our minds toward the joy that those things bring. That we might push all our chips to the center of the table and say, I'm all in. I'm all in on Jesus. And there is no other. Father, by your grace, may you make us that kind of people, we pray in Jesus' name.